Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hollywood Sources is proud to be brought to you by the Scotch Whiskey Association's Made to Be Measured campaign. A dram of whiskey, of course, is one of life's little pleasures. But have you ever wondered how many units of alcohol are in the glass? According to the Scottish Government, around 8 out of 10 of us in Scotland don't know how many units of alcohol are contained in common drinks like a pint of beer or a glass of wine. The Made to Be Measured campaign seeks to change that For example, a single measure of Scotch whisky, Scotland's world-famous national drink, contains one unit of alcohol, while a pint of average-strength beer contains more than double that. Scotch whisky, it's made to be measured. Savour your scotch and find out more at scotch-whisky.org.uk forward slash made to be measured. We're not opposed to uh, any new uh, oil and gas, uh, but feel that it has to be uh, passing much more stringent climate compatibility checkpoints. And welcome to Hollywood Sources. I'm Kyla McDonald. We're recording on Wednesday, the 27th of September. Thank you for being there. Thank you for finding us. If you are new, make sure you follow uh, the podcast so you never miss an episode again. You can follow for free or you can subscribe on Apple or on Acast for four ninety nine a month and you will not hear an advert. You will, however, still hear Jeff Aberdeen, who was Chief of Staff to Alex Salmond when he was First Minister. Hello, Jeff. Uh, good morning. And before we continue, I do want attention drawn to my... T-shirt today, which uh, despite Aberdeen's indifferent start to the season, uh, it uh, proudly shows um, the European Cup Winners' Cup final 1983 when we beat Real Madrid. And just uh, for those who support other teams on this call, uh, Aberdeen remains the only club to win two European trophies. Um, And on that basis, the best team in Scotland. Right. (laughs) 
there we are. We're off to a flying start. Let's say let's say hello to Andy McKeever as well. Well, this is going to be a fun podcast. Right. Who, who was director of communications for the Scottish Conservatives? What football team do you support, Andy? Well, I am a, a Rangers fan. My father is from Stornoway, and in the old days, everybody from Stornoway was a Rangers fan. So I'm a Rangers fan, mm. um, and uh, we still do get to European finals. Unfortunately, we just lose them all. But Jeff is right. Aberdeen are the only team to have won two European finals. Um, that was it was, a, it was a twice in a generation event, unlike other things that we've been discussing of late. <laughs> oh no! Oh no! Right, I'm moving us on extremely quickly. Uh, every, we are everyone's getting along very, very well. I, ha- I just want to reinforce that, listeners. It's all good on Hollywood sources. Uh, right, we will introduce our guest in the next few minutes as well, uh, who is Andy Whiteman, who was a Scottish Green Party MSP from 2016 to 2020. So Andy's on the podcast shortly. Uh, just before we get to him, guys, I want to discuss some of the some of the news that's bubbling around uh, today. Um, and I suppose actually we should start, shouldn't we, with uh, the Rosebank uh, oil field. Uh, Jeff, I know you want to talk about this. Um, so the announcement today is that it's been approved. The Rosebank uh, oil field has been ap- approved by regulators. Um, it's the largest, the UK's largest untapped oil field. It's 80 miles west of Shetland. It's thought it's got 500 million barrels of oil in here. Energy is something we've talked quite a lot about before, Jeff. Put this in its context for us, um, because Hamza Youssef says he's disappointed. Uh, the Green Party have called the decision morally obscene. Um, where are we at with all of this? Well, um, it'll be no shock for you to hear that I approve of the decision. Um, But I want to just place it in a little bit of context, if I may. Um, Firstly, uh, there is a lot of noise on Twitter just now about ensuring this doesn't ensure a just transition for workers. Yes, it does. Uh, These types of decisions do. And and I want to explain why. So firstly, I want to recommend very highly the Powering the Workforce report that uh, Professor Paul deluded from our Robert Gordon's University last week. It's not a political report, and it highlights how we can best incentivise the critical mass that we have in Scotland, uh, the skills, the jobs, the energy supply chain companies, of which we have the highest concentration anywhere in the UK, um, and the financial capital, to ensure that we have a transition to renewables um, sustained by that particularly oil and gas supply uh, chain. And that is how you ensure a just transition for workers, in my view. I am meeting daily with the energy supply chain companies, and there is a massive appetite to invest in renewables, green hydrogen, offshore wind. And it's so exciting. But as I've said in this podcast before, they're sitting there and they're saying, look, Jeff, we do not have the, the projects to invest in. And furthermore, It is the profits from our existing oil and gas contracts that will allow us to accelerate when they are available. So there has to be this word transition. We seem to forget about this word transition. And I think we can get to net zero quickly uh, and quicker if we do incentivize the very thing that will get us there uh, uh, on time. And that is indeed uh, our energy supply chain uh, uh, that exists in the northeast of Scotland. Second point I very much briefly want to make is linked to Rishi Sunak's speech last week on net zero. Now, there was a lot of stuff in the speech I didn't particularly care for, um, uh, but there was a lot of good stuff in it as well, actually. And clearly he's doing this to, 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 to see the dividing lines ahead of the general uh, election. And perhaps it's a bit of political desperation. Um, I don't know. But but the, the point he made at the end of his speech, which I thought was the most relevant point, he said, look, you know, we can talk about net zero all we like, 
Um, the reality is uh, we do not have the grid capacity and connections, and I would argue to that, added to that is the port infrastructure, to support offshore wind and get it commercially available. So we can talk about net zero, but it's all relevant unless we can actually commercialize it and get it on the grid and utilize it for our public infrastructure as well as uh, commercial infrastructure. So we must have a direct focus on improving these capacity and connections to allow us to have a seamless transition at the appropriate time. So until then, yes, it's right that we have oil and gas uh, uh, support until then for energy and economic security. Sorry for the wrong answer. No, no, not at all. It's really helpful. And Andy McKeever... Long answer, not wrong. No. <laughs> is, it a, is this then a good day or a bad day for, well, I, I don't know, for politics, for Scotland, for our, you know, for the transition? Where do you, where do you sit on all of this? Well, it'll certainly not be a good day for politics. Let's be clear about that one. Um, this is going to be one of those days where if you're a neutral or if you value nuance, I would stay off Twitter. I think that's probably fair to say. Look, this is complex because being in government and making these sorts of decisions is complex, is difficult. Um, I, one of my companies is Zero Matters. As you know, we, uh, we get our clients to net zero. We do carbon footprinting. We create net zero plans and we manage their transition to net zero. I'm an environmentalist. Sitting right behind my head right now is a big electric car. Um, I go on my bike everywhere. I mean, I uh, I live and breathe this stuff. And as I say, my, in my professional life, we are reducing you know we are reducing our clients' carbon right now as we speak. So, um, you know, I, I consider myself to be an environmentalist, but I do support this news today um, because it isn't always about the impact of what you do. It's sometimes about the impact of not doing something. So. Yes, in an ideal world, given what we know about climate change and the absolute emergency that we have on our hands, in an ideal world, would you drill for oil? No, of course you wouldn't. You wouldn't do it right now. You'd pull the whole thing out right now in an ideal world. But we don't live in an ideal world. So what are the impacts of not doing this? What are the impacts on jobs of not doing this? What's the impact on security of supply of not doing this? What is the impact on the development of renewables, of not doing this? Where do the profits come from to do the renewable development if you don't do this? And you can't have that debate on Twitter, uh, and you can't have that debate with the extremes of either side of the argument. You can't have that debate with a climate denier, but you also can't have that debate with some of the environmental groups either. And this is why government is much more difficult than opposition and and governing is more difficult than campaigning because you have to take decisions that are nuanced and you have to take decisions because you know what will happen if you don't. And that really is, I think, what today is about. Very well said, my fellow commentator. <laughs> hey, look at this outbreak of consensus already. Well, that's nicer than last week. We've made a very good start. Let's just stop the podcast right now. Cut it off. Exactly. I'm going. What a difference a week makes. Uh, right, well, actually, this is probably a good time to bring in Andy Whiteman, who was a Scottish Green Party MSP for the Lothian region from 2016 to 2020. Uh, Andy, welcome to the podcast. Hi, nice to be here. 
It's good to have you on. I wonder what your take is on this then. You've heard um, what Jeff and Andy have said, and indeed I mentioned the, the kind of response from the, the Scottish Green Party. Uh, they've called the, the Rosebank uh, approval by regulators morally obscene. How do you reflect on, on the decision today and indeed on the political response to it? Well, I suppose it's a good day, good day for Norway, um, whose state-owned oil corporation is going to be drilling this stuff. Um, I mean, I take the view that the International Energy Agency and others internationally have said for some time that we need to leave um, the majority of the world's known reserves in the ground. Um, That's a fairly clear policy stance. It's been around for the best part of a decade. And thus, I don't agree we should be drilling for new oil. Um, The second point is that Rosebank may have been approved by the regulator, but whether Rosebank is ever developed depends on the um, almost inevitable battle in the courts, which I think there will be. We've seen court rulings around fossil fuels and net zero um, around the world. And I think what's lacking in all of this actually is not just a, a UK level or a European level, or but a global level, is a strategic approach to end our reliance on fossil fuels. Now, that's not just about a transition. I mean, a transition is about this state to that state, um, and it's important, Jeff's correct, it is important. And it is important, perhaps, that we do some um, new developments in oil and gas. And the other nuance in this, of course, <clears throat> is that this oil will be sold in the international market. So it's got no bearing whatsoever on the UK's domestic energy security. Um, but fossil fuels um, will be needed for a long time in the future because they're used to make quite useful things, including uh, the blades of some wind turbines in the petrochemical industry. Um so do I think it's a good day? No, because I do not think we should be drilling for new oil. Now, if we had a proper transition, and that's just not, not about jobs and technology, that's, that's about setting a clear pathway to reduce our reliance on fossil fuels, it may be that Rosebank could fit in that. But in the absence of that, it's very, very hard to say. And therefore, my default position is no new oil drilling. Yeah. See, my, my, if I may come in there, Andy, I thought, very considered comments. Um, you know, I won't agree necessarily um, on on all of these things, obviously. But but I want to touch on something that both you and Andy said, and it's this kind of I, I identity that we've kind of failed to assume in in our policy making about a proper route map about what transition really is. And my fear, and I'm hearing this quite a lot, and it's just rumours just now, is that with offshore wind we are going to see significant delays um, with some of the Scotland projects that were announced. Uh, and that's perhaps inevitable because one of the things we're facing is uh, a lack of steel manufacturing for the turbines. You mentioned the petrochemicals earlier on, but we don't have the, the high volume manufacturing around that just yet in place. But as I mentioned earlier, we also don't have the port infrastructure to to deal with the sheer capacity of what's coming and also port optimization. So we've got these wonderful um, existing ports, which, I, as I say, I think need to be expanded, but um, they don't have optimization in term, terms of which part of this industry that they're going to do. So you've got cable manufacturing, you've got moorings and anchorings, you've got operations and maintenance. And I do feel that we need from government, particularly the Scottish government, um, a route map which includes port optimization so that we can get to net zero quicker. My fundamental starting position is this, is what Andy says, I want to get to net zero. There is a climate emergency on, but if we do it in Scotland without the very critical mass that will be responsible for us potentially, potentially being global leaders, particularly in a a floating offshore wind, then I'm hugely concerned about the future for our economy. 
really interesting thoughts on that. Uh, Andy, it's, it's really interesting to speak to you on the podcast today. There's so much that we kind of want to cover. Um, I actually want to start here, if I may. It's potentially a slightly odd place to start um, because we are so grateful to have you on. Why, why is it that you think that the Scottish Green Party don't want to speak to us on this podcast? The party of which you were a member that you, you know, that you represented as an MSP. We have, uh, well, I have personally emailed uh, them, all of the MSPs, in fact, uh, in in Holyrood. I've also emailed the press office of the Green Party. What is it that you think means that they don't don't want to come on the podcast? Well, I I mean, that's the first I've heard of that. Um, No, of course, of course. But I'm just, I, I, I guess basically what I'm asking is your take on the state of the Scottish Green Party today. Well, I mean, I have no idea why an elected legislator would not wish to appear at some stage on a podcast like this, which, uh, you know, in terms of the people presenting it, represents a range of political opinions. It's not gender balanced, sure. Um, I can understand their reluctance perhaps to go on a a, a highly pro-unionist podcast, uh, but but I would go on that. I mean, this is the thing. I mean, yeah, I think the most interesting and intelligent debate and discussion takes place between people who disagree with each other. I mean, obviously it does, because otherwise there's no debate. Um, but one has to be willing to engage with people one doesn't agree with. Um, so, I mean, I, I have absolutely no idea why they wouldn't want to come on a podcast. I mean, I know there's other things they're boycotting for various reasons. But, yeah, I mean, you'd, you'd have to ask them. <laughs> Of course, of course, and you know, and, and we will try to. I, I just wonder, as I say, I, I suppose I'm getting at your 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 analysis of of the Scottish Green Party um, today uh, in terms of their influence in in the Scottish government, in terms of their direction of travel, and and whether you would still consider yourself a, a supporter, really, of the Scottish Green Party. Well, I'm not no longer a supporter of the Scottish Green Party. I'm, I'm no longer a member of the Scottish Green Party. I I still am still regard myself as a green politician. I've been in green politics um, since I was 17, Um, inspired by Petra Kelly, in fact, of the German Greens way back in the day. Um, They've become, you know, my departure from that wasn't actually over policy at all, despite what people think. It was about an increasing censorious culture within the party, which I documented uh, in my blog in August Mm. 2022. so there was a, there was a, there was a history to this. I mean, there was there were debates about, for example, Scottish Greens policy on sex work, um, in which there's a lot of debate to be had, intelligent debate to be had, but it was the censorious nature of that, the aggressive um, shutting down and putting down of some quite vulnerable people um, that I felt was not a comfortable place for me to be, and that I'm someone who values debate and nuance and friendly disagreement. Um, so it was primarily because of the culture I found myself in where, you know, just going to a meeting that people didn't like you going to led to complaints and stuff. And I thought, well, I've got better things to do in my life. Um, so I would say there's a, there's a censorious culture. Um, there's also quite an authoritarian culture of groupthink. Um, and there's also quite a, a binary culture um, for and against things, a, a, a lack of... I think a lack of understanding of nuance. I can understand why, you know, the Greens would not admit any nuance in Rosebank. Okay, political parties do not admit nuance in their fundamental beliefs. Um, But there's a tendency uh, for that to permeate many other areas of policy as well. 
Mm. That's interesting what you say there about the kind of the nuance, the binary. Um, I noted in your blog that you you said that you'd resigned because uh, you wanted an environment that's more tolerant, questioning, critical, empathetic, and more willing to listen. Do you see any evidence that that environment exists in the Scottish Green Party and perhaps even more broadly uh, in the Scottish Parliament? Well, I don't think it existed in the Scottish Green Party. Things may change. I don't know. Um, I, think mm. incre- I think increasingly it doesn't exist in Scotland. Um, you know, I'm troubled, as many people are, by the state of Scottish politics, by the level of discourse. There's all sorts of reasons for that. Um, and we appear to be engaging in a range of contemporary debates from quite an angry, polarised positions. And that's not good for the body politic. It certainly turns people off politics. Uh, It turns people off engaging with politics. um, And it makes people's health poorer. You know, mental health is really, really important. And one of the best ways to ensure mental health, I mean, there are many ways. One is good access to nature and exercise and fresh air. And one is friendly, jovial, social life, the ability to be kind and uh, and empathetic. And if people see a culture which is dominated by um, aggravation, polarization, and name-calling, um, it, it, it does genuinely damage people's mental health. So, no, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a great, um, not a great admirer of the current state of Scottish politics. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. And that has become a bit of a theme, I have to say, on the podcast, is the more sort of politicians that we speak to, the more, I suppose, disillusioned they are with their, the, the option to discuss things that, that, that evaporates, that doesn't exist in a way that they feel is constructive or helpful in any way at all. Um, and I think that is really sad because it's so helpful. I mean, we all love discussing things. We all love debating things. And when Jeff and Andy have a fallout on the podcast, it's great, you know, because we're learning things as we go along. Um, Andy uh, McKeever, uh, your, your take on the on the Greens and on what Andy's saying, particularly around his reasons for resigning from the Scottish Green Party and whether actually there's been any change or has the situation got worse, I suppose. Um, well, there are... There aren't a lot of Andy Whitemans about anymore, and that's a real shame, to be honest with you, in all parties. Um, Andy Whiteman, as an MSP, was very well liked and very well respected across the parliament. And a lot of people didn't agree with the things that he thought, but he argued them in that parliament um, respectfully and very well. And I think he probably changed a lot of minds, actually, in the way that he argued some of these points in terms of what he thought. And... um, but I suppose if you're the sort of person who does behave like that, if you're the sort of person who likes to have a reasonable debate and who likes to respect their opponents, is the Scottish Parliament actually the place for you at the moment? I'm not so sure uh, that it is because um, the things that Andy said there about the Scottish Green Party, I would agree with, but I think they are becoming features of all political parties, actually, Um I think Mm -hmm. the Butte House Agreement has shown us that there are lots of people in the SNP who behave in a very, very similar way to the Greens. And that is not uh, just felt on the nationalist side. There are people on the... I mean, I spent half my day on Twitter yesterday taking flack from uh, people who would describe themselves uh, as Tories who were saying all sorts of things about me because, again, um, you know, uh, this is... I think Scotland at the moment... Is in Scottish politics is a place where nuance and debate goes to die. It's just not 
um, really present uh, much at the moment. And that that isn't, um, I mean, that's not positive. That's not a good thing. I think it's come about because of the constitutional question. I think that has uh, put flames on the fire. That's not to say it's not a valid question to ask, because it absolutely is. But I think the way that we have dealt with mm. it has uh, exacerbated that issue. I think just, I, I do always like to emphasise this, because I think it's important. Um, I would love it if we had people from the Greens on this podcast more often. There's, you know, this is, I think it's fair to say that Jeff and I are both um, uh, believers in capitalism and markets and business. And there are some in the Greens who are not. That's totally fine. You could fairly describe this podcast as imbalanced in favour of capitalism, right? But I don't, I don't mind that. I think, you know, I think most people are. Um, but that's not to say there aren't discussions and debates to be had. And in fact, uh, as you know, Callum, I'm incredibly complimentary yeah. about what the Greens have achieved uh, in this parliament. They have extracted an extraordinary amount of influence over a government that only needed one vote. Um, you know, we'll look back on this and look at the Greens and say, boy, they did a brilliant job in that parliament because the influence they got uh, over a party that only needed one vote was widespread, uh, an effective veto on many, many areas. Um, and in terms of, you know, forget about the impact and the policy. I'm not saying it's not important because it is. But for the purposes of this, forget about the impact and the policy. The Greens are an extraordinarily successful political party. Uh, they have 8% of the vote uh, and uh, eight seats. And with that, they have huge influence over Scottish public life. That is what politics is about. Politics is about getting as many votes and seats as you can and getting the influence you can. And they have done it and they have done it brilliantly. Andy Whiteman. Uh, yes, and that, that, you're correct to point, Andy, but of course, the only reason the Greens are in a coalition is because the SNP wanted it. Um, and I never quite understood mm. the rationale for that. I mean, Amzal Yusuf defends it on the basis that they want a stable majority in Parliament, and that, that, that's understandable, um, I suppose. But from a parliamentary point of view, you know, in the Parliament I was in, <clears throat> the executive did not have a majority. It meant, for example, that we could have meaningful votes of confidence in the Deputy First Minister who was refusing until 6pm the day before to hand over critical evidence to the committee investigating um, harassment handling in the Scottish Government. It meant that opposition parties could meaningfully work together to constructively come to amendments uh, to various Scottish um, government uh, bills, and therefore Parliament was stronger. So one of the consequences of this coalition is that Parliament is weaker, um, and it's weaker because Hamza Youssef wanted to be uh, weaker. Can, can I just interject slightly? There's, this is a really interesting discussion, and I was in my head the last sort of five minutes wondering how I'm going to get at this point I want to make. But Andy, you mentioned the word binary, and it stuck out to me so much because... Our politics is you're either one or the other. You're black or you're white just now. And I think that's so unhealthy. So I would imagine, I'm just guessing here, in the views of some green politicians and potentially some in the SNP, they view me as a climate denier because I support our oil and gas industry for the reasons I outlined earlier on. Nothing could be further from the truth. And yet... 
The reason this is so important, it's a crystallisation of a wider debate we have on various public policies just now. I've never felt the people of Scotland are one thing or the other. I believe that the vast majority of us live in this grey area. We like parts of this on that side and we like parts of that on the other side and dislike as well. And Andy says it might have been the constitutional uh, question that kind of led to this being catalyzed in such a way. That might be the case. I'm not going to say uh, definitively there were what my view is because it, it could be part of that. But I reflect on my time in government personally and, and I think I was a decent advisor because I was willing to say to ministers, senior ministers, including the first minister, this is shite, guys. We sound stupid here. We need to change this. And the reason I wouldn't be a good politician is because I would still be that same person. I would hold those views. And I'd find it very, very difficult to just say, go along with the party line. And I feel that that is what's happening now. And we talk about Fergus Ewing, who faces a vote later on today by his party. Yes, I accept. And I think Fergus might in his quieter moments, except some of his rhetoric and his language has been quite out there and it's difficult for there not to potentially be some sort of disciplinary uh, procedures. But fundamentally, he's espousing his views that he thinks is detrimental to his constituents and indeed uh, those businesses across Scotland. That's a good thing. We've got to find a way to have that accommodation in our politics again. Otherwise, I just fear... If you're interested in going into politics, you're largely going to come from a political activist point of view, maybe be a counsellor. This is my views. We are the, we, are we, they are they, uh, they're the enemy. And we don't actually get conducive, constructive politics or indeed policy making. And I do feel it's pretty, pretty damn bad just now. On Jeff's point, Andy, you know, it, as I say, this is becoming a, a theme. And I, I reckon, I know I'd probably back Jeff on that most people live in grey areas, that they sort of like to make their minds up on things as they're going along. I just wonder what then is responsible for this atmosphere that is not constructive. Is it about the characters that are involved? Is it about some sort of structural thing at Hollywood that's making it difficult? What can we change to make this better? Oh, no, I'm sad. Spend podcasts on that. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I'm no, I, I'm no expert, and, and I really don't want to spend time thinking about it. Um, there are people qualified than me to, um, to do that. I mean, we, we have. The, the general quality of politicians has been in slow, steady decline, I think. Um, we also have, we live in quite a centralised country. So, um, you know, I'm a strong proponent of very strong local government. Uh, you know, the Scottish Parliament should be, you know, a legislature and some important national executive functions. And that should be it. Um, in fact, it does a lot of stuff that should and is in other countries done at the local um, level, I think we live in a world which is increasingly polarised and binary and stressful, um, not least because of the climate crisis um, and economic shocks we've had and the rise of populism on the left and the right. So there's a number of, of environmental and social factors that explain this, but the responsibility, the burden uh, to resolve this ultimately rests on people in leadership roles and how they conduct themselves um, in public, and the extent to which they're willing to to listen and, and be empathetic and be constructive and engage. Um, and I think behaviours on the part of too many politicians are contributing 
um, significantly to this problem. We're in conversation with Andy Whiteman, who was an MSP for the Scottish Green Party. Uh, Do stay with us. Lots of his big thoughts to come on local councils, their power, their influence, and what needs to change in order that politics can function more effectively in Scotland. Stay with us. We're right back after this. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hollywood Sources is proud to be brought to you by the Scotch Whiskey Association's Made to Be Measured campaign. Did you know that the recommended weekly limit of 14 units of alcohol equates to five pints of beer at average strength, or one and a half bottles of wine, or 14 single measures of spirits? If you didn't know that, well, you're not alone, actually. The majority of people who choose to drink alcohol do not know how many units are contained in the most common drinks. Informed consumers, though, make more responsible choices. And so the Made to be Measured campaign is supporting people across Scotland to understand more about the units in their glass. Made in Scotland and enjoyed around the world, Scotch whisky should always be enjoyed responsibly. Find out more by visiting scotch-whisky.org.uk forward slash made to be measured. I, um, I mean, this is not going to be universally popular, but um, I, I, I do think that you can't move back to that sort of situation that we had. And I've been reflecting on it a bit recently because it's 10 years since David McCletchie died. And I remember in Bruce Crawford's resignation speech, he talked about David McCletchie and the relationship he had with him more than almost anybody else. And McCletchie was somebody who campaigned really heavily against the Scottish Parliament, really, really heavily. But when he got there, he became very protective of it and actually wanted to make it work and had good relationships across the board and it shows that that sort of thing is achievable the reality though as i look from the outside in i don't think we can do any of this until the constitutional question is solved i'm somebody who thinks there's a mandate for a second referendum i think there should have been one because i think the snp earned the right to have one at the last election however the reality is there's no roadmap to a second referendum now it's dead it's not happening Um, And because of that, I actually think the quickest way to move back to the sort of situation that we've talked about, where you can have more co-working, is if independence is not on the table. And it may not be on the table after 2026, because if there is a unionist majority in that parliament, which current polling suggests there will be, then the parties, I think, will effectively be forced in to working together on issues not related to the constitution. That might be a little bit optimistic but i do i think and hope 
that that is where we might get to after 2026. Uh, Andy, I know that you want to talk a bit about uh, local government. You mentioned it, in fact, there as well. Um, In terms of local government, local authorities in Scotland, do do they have the freedom, the powers, the finances to act in the way that you think they should? No. No, I mean, devolution has been bad for local government. Um, yes, there have been reforms in the voting system. Um, for example, um, uh, we pay councillors now. That was an important uh, reform. But by and large, uh, the, the answer is no. It's why the bill, my member's bill I introduced, was incorporating European Charter and Local Self-Government, which is an international treaty of the Council of Europe, Um, It's kind of stuck in the Supreme Court. We know now it needs to be uh, changed. But um, that's designed to give some quasi-constitutional protection to local government. It would, for example, I think, um, if it were enacted, have prevented the council tax freeze, which was a very good example of the executive telling local government what tax rates it should set. The executive has got no power to set the rate of council tax. That is a duty under law by local authorities to set the band D rate. And if uh, Theresa May or Boris Johnson or or Keir Starmer or anyone else was to tell the Scottish government to freeze a tax, and if they didn't, the penalty would be a cut on their block grant, there would be right rightful outrage. And yet that's what the council tax freeze uh, was. Um, we don't have local government. We have regional government. Um, you know, I live in Lochaber. Highland Council is massive. Um, I went to Norway years and years ago for a conference, and I was sitting next to the chief executive of the local commune, and we were privatizing, not privatizing, centralizing fire and rescue and police at the time. And I asked him in a commune of 2,500 people, how do, you, how do you operate a fire brigade? Because you're responsible for fire and rescue. And he looked at me as if I was a bit stupid. He said, well, we cooperate, obviously. <laughs> you know, we can't afford a fire brigade of our own. So they co- cooperate all the way down to Lillehammer. And he said a new tunnel had been built, so the commune over the mountain was in their fire brigade now because appliances could get through the tunnel now quicker than they previously could. And this is what I call the Lego brick model of democracy. You have small enough units that are genuinely local and can hold significant powers. But for the obvious, more regional, more county-level functions, you cooperate. And they have a different Lego brick configuration for fire and rescue, a different Lego brick configuration for primary education, a different configuration for primary health care, etc. But at the end of the day, the buck stops with a council, members of which you meet in your local street, and incidentally, who, as I understand, are responsible for spending about half your income tax revenue. So it's that degree of accountability that's really, really important. And I think we are completely lacking that in Scotland. And you have the situation where ministers in Edinburgh are making micro decisions. Um, You know, I'm a strong advocate of land reform when we introduced the community right to buy in 2003. I said, why do ministers have to decide whether a community in Wick should have consent to acquire an old waterworks from Scottish Water? That decision should be made actually not by Highland Council, but by a reconstituted Caithness District Council. These are decisions that are perfectly capable of being made uh, locally. Um, big decisions are being made locally, and yet they're all made in St Andrew's House. And it's this, I mean, I, when, they, when the Cabinet Papers from 2007 were published, I was shocked, and I, I cited this in a Hollywood column recently, shocked to find that they, 
you know, John Swinney at the time was seriously suggesting that if councils didn't agree to a council tax freeze, he would withdraw responsibility of education from them. I mean, that, you know, you would not get away with that kind of politics in Germany. You'd be in front of the constitutional court because the rights of local government are protected under the constitution. Anyway, there's a huge big topic there, but I mean, I, I feel passionately about that and I feel we miss this when we talk about democracy, when we talk about how we're governed. We're so infatuated with the constitutional question um, that we never think about the fact that all politics, as some politician, Harold Wilson, no, it was an American president, said, you know, all politics is local. Mm. Do you agree with that, Jeff? Is all politics local? Have we have we removed an important local part of politics from Scotland? I could listen to Andy go on about this for some considerable time. I find <laughs> this utterly fascinating. Um, I suppose my reflections are, in my experience, there are some areas of policy and that I feel that shouldn't be carried out by local authorities and I'm and I feel that they don't have the resources either human or infrastructure to support that so one example is I think a lot of local authorities remember we're we're a country of five and a half million people with 32 local authorities and we've got 32 local authorities, I'm guessing, I'm certainly with the ones I've you know, worked with closely, have a, a unit that's a, a, a hoping to attract inward investment. And you know, recently I was speaking to somebody who said, you know, I'm meant to be doing this, but I have no experience in doing that. And yet they're stretched so thin that sometimes the job isn't done correctly. And what I was really attracted to what Andy was saying is thinking about, you mentioned the Caithness district and the old, and I was thinking about the old Grampian region uh, council as well, and wondering how we can still have that close interpersonal local representation, but have perhaps that stage of decision making that speaks for a regional aspiration, and then you have uh, uh, the you know Holyrood administration above that, and I think there's something really in that in terms of how we move forward. I am really, I feel very sorry for a lot of the local authorities just now. Uh, they're fighting with one hand behind their back. Uh, they're almost inevitably going to have to put up council tax to try and co cover the costs of uh, 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 reversing decisions on closing of facilities and all the rest of it. Meanwhile, they're meant to be taking forward really crucial implementations on different uh, education policy, on, on some local health provision as well. And I feel that we've never got to the bottom of this. And I'm, and I'm putting my hands up. You mentioned 2007. I don't think the SNP and government haven't really got to grips with the scale of the problem, but equally the scale of the opportunity here to make things better as well. And I'm really struck about what Andy talks about, that, that very local, regional and national. And perhaps there's time now to look at that going forward. Else I do fear we're just going to be talking about cuts uh, and uh, to vital services forever and a day. I, I like Jeff. I really, I, I think that um, Andy's extremely thoughtful on this issue. I have to say, and it's a big. I think it's a big problem. I didn't vote. The, the only election I've ever not voted in was the last local authority elections. I didn't bother. I thought, you know what? There is absolutely no point. It is going to make no difference whatsoever. <laughs> 
who my local councillors are. And the, 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 re, the main reason I didn't do it is that every single piece of literature that came through my door was about a national issue. Every single piece. It was about independence or, dare I say it, you know, oil and gas or whatever. And it's like, this has got nothing to do with this election at all. Um, and I, I actually, I didn't want to indulge them by giving them my vote. I didn't want to encourage that sort of behaviour because it's actually, it's deeply damaging and we can see the damage of all of it. We are a very centralised country. The reason that we had to battle so hard to get a Scottish Parliament is because we're a very centralised country. But as Andy said, devolution stopped in 1999 and in fact it became more centralised because Scottish governments of all colours have tried to pull as much power away from local authorities and into central government uh, as they possibly could. Um, Council tax, which is a, a major current issue because it's a consultation out. Um, of course, it's not really a consultation on local tax. It's a consultation on whether we should tinker with council tax bans, which is a complete waste of time. Council tax is an idiotic tax to have as your main local tax. Local authorities should all have the ability to have a, a large range of taxes because different taxes will suit different local authorities. Some will benefit from an income tax. Some will benefit from a sales tax. Some would benefit more from a land value tax along the lines that Andy talks about. It depends where you are and how your area is structured. And again, you know, we we are politicians are petrified of talking about introducing a different layer of government or changing the structure of local government. The reality is there should be two different layers. There should be bigger regional type authorities which will do things like inward investment and will take charge of things like city region growth deals and then there should be much smaller units on the ground and all of these units should have a simple premise that they should raise the money they spend that is what government at all levels should be about from Holyrood to what would be more regional authorities to community-based authorities if you want to spend the money you raise the money. That is the job of government. And that, that's fiscal autonomy for the Scottish Parliament, but it's also financial autonomy for local authorities as well. The problem is, of course, and, and by the way, this is it has a psychological effect on people. That's why you get a situation where at First Minister's questions, somebody raises an issue because one of their constituents didn't get access to treatment at some local hospital. It's like, that's nothing to do with the First Minister. That shouldn't be anywhere near the First Minister's desk and it shouldn't be getting raised at FMQ. But psychologically, we look to central government to solve all our problems and it's because we know that at local level they don't actually have the power to do so. So can I ask, just before we bring Andy, I really want, obviously, Andy, your comments on this, Andy Whiteman, that is, how do we get to this position? So we've identified the problem. I think we're almost in, in agreement and alignment broadly about the scale of the problem. How, particularly Andy Whiteman, given that you've just come out of Parliament, how do we get to a position where this is even a consideration about reforming? You know, I don't, I, I, I don't know. But partly because previous reforms have been highly political, but I'm, I'm also very struck. There's a difference between Scotland and England here. I mean, I hosted a guest blog years and years ago, looking at the seven uh, boroughs and the borders: Jedburgh, um, Selkirk, Hoyken places. Uh, and, and we looked at the history of, of all the Scottish boroughs, including Berwick, which is now in England, um, and their, the land they own and the assets they have. And these used to be very wealthy places with uh, uh, the remnants of that are their common good funds now and their common good lands. That's the remnants of it. Berwick has more land and more revenue than all of the other former Scottish borders boroughs put together. And the only difference between Berwick and all of the rest of them is Berwick is in England. Berwick still has a town council. 
Okay, so there's some important distinctions between what's happened in Scotland and what's happened in England that, you know, I haven't really kind of looked into the history of that. The other reason, look at a more continental level, is because we don't have a written constitution that would protect the local. And that has, by and large, I mean, it's a post-French Revolution thing, right, that the parishes become civil, um, the civil takes on powers. It's why in police, in, in, in France, you know, you still have police municipal. You know, the the person that's waving the traffic in a small French village is not someone from Police Scotland. It's a local police officer with local responsibilities to do local um, things. And actually, it's this demarcation of responsibility that's quite key. I made myself quite unpopular at times when I refused to take on casework to do with, for example, council housing. I said, that's not my responsibility. I'm a legislator. I'm not responsible for whether your door's getting fixed. I mean, obviously, I didn't say it as bluntly as that, as that to constituent. But for some reason, I, I used to get Ian Murray MP's newsletter. I don't know why. I wasn't in his constituency. But he had a pie chart on it that showed the issues he was dealing with segmented. And not only were about two-thirds of those from memory devolved issues, but about two-thirds of the devolved issues were actually council issues. So we've got this kind of trespassing and blurring of boundaries between who's responsible for what. And the easy thing to do for a constituent with a complaint or an issue is just to escalate it up the tree, as Andy McKeever says, all the way to First Minister's questions. And I put my hand up. You know, there have been times when I used the platform of First Minister's questions to raise an issue. And it does have a role in using an example uh, to flag up that there is a, a policy issue. But only, I think, I would like to think, only when there's a substantive policy issue, you know, w w did, 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 I, did I do that? Um, but this blurring of boundaries, I think, is not, is, not, is not very helpful at all. And so then how, how, how to reframe that? So that's, you know, that's, that's the consideration here. Well, one reframes it by saying we do want a refresh of democratic governance, you know, a proper refresh. And it's not hard, right? Most other European countries do this. Most European countries have arrived at broadly the same place as each other. They have communes or municipalities, call it what you will. They have regions or counties, call it what you will. They have a national government and they have a constitution which in to varying degrees, guarantees the role and the distinct responsibilities of the levels of government. That's the architecture. Britain is abnormal. I mean, historically, we weren't. The centre used to be weak. People like Neville Chamberlain, you know, is lauded actually for his mayorship of Birmingham. That's where he, you know, achieved greatness. And if you think, I mean, one of the, one of the reasons we have this is the post-war nationalisation. You know, I mean, Edinburgh used to, when it elected its MP in 1890, 1910, there used to be a, a pipe band and there was bunting and speeches as these MPs were sent off on a special train, probably not a special train, all the way to London. You know, and their job was to sue for peace in the Sudan and repeal the Corn Laws and goodness knows what. They were hardly ever seen in Edinburgh because Edinburgh Corporation looked after the people of Edinburgh, had gasworks and waterworks and tramworks. Um, and that's all been eroded you know, and culminating in the post-war era where we nationalised all these things that were actually municipal responsibilities, uh, you know, energy, transport, um, etc. So we, Britain has had a very strange relationship with modern governance, I would say, and all sorts of reasons for that.
It's really interesting. That is uh, thought-provoking. And actually, it's a kind of new, bit of new territory for us to consider going forward from here as well, I suppose, the kind of local authority, uh, how much authority they have and how this kind of restructure um, could kind of work. Um, thanks, Andy. Really, really nice to, to talk about that. Uh, shall we consider, um, at risk of, uh, you know, moving, <laughs> moving too quickly from that conversation, back to national politics, uh, but shall we consider the, the kind of the state of play, where we're at? So we've got uh, a by-election coming up next week in Rutherglen and Hamilton West. Uh, we've got a UK general election at some point uh, by the end of next year. We've got a Scottish parliamentary election in a couple of years' time. Um, in terms of this Scottish government, Andy Whiteman, what is their record coming up to these electoral tests? How are the SNP, and from, from your point of view, how are the Scottish Greens in government performing? Well, I mean, it depends what you mean by, you know, put aside the Greens for one moment, um, you know, the SNP in government. I mean, they, they have been in government since 2007. And I mean, the, the natural law of politics is that a government that's in power that long, um, you know, is on its way out. Um, I mean, I, I genuinely and quite objectively think that in those past how, 2007, well, we're talking about 17 years, um, 16 years, um, there has been relatively little that's been genuinely transformational. I mean, it, the it's hard to think. I mean, I mean, there are you know examples, grant you, but it's hard to think that devolution has been taken on a great further leap since two thousand and seven. Um, and it's difficult actually to compare the SNP's performance in government with previous performances because there was a lot to do between 1999, you know, for the first one or two or perhaps three parliaments. I mean, I, you know, I wrote my book, Ho in Scotland in 1996, said we will never get to grips with the need for land reform or whatever you thought of it. The abolition of feudal tenure, I think, was in Donald Dewar's first manifestoed fighting in Aberdeen in the 50s. Um, partly for, well, for two reasons. One, there's never space in the Westminster calendar. Uh, the Secretary of State traditionally had about three slots. You can't govern a country on three slots. We are an independent jurisdiction, always have been. There's three of them in the UK. And second, the House of Lords would block it. So we needed that parliament. We needed that democratic space. And by the time it came, the first administration and into its second administration had a lot to do. And by its nature, did a lot of transformational things. I think the 2007 to 11 parliament actually did quite a lot of stuff as well. And I think maybe the majority from 2011 onwards um, engendered a bit of complacency. I do think the SNP are by and large treading water. And I do by and large think that the constitutional question, uh, a smarter politician would have parked that quite sharply after 2014, if only to enable the political space to get to, 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 to open up to do some of the important domestic reforms um, that I would like to think the SNP want to do, but in fact have been, in a sense, I think, inhibited by the fact we've created a very tribal atmosphere between parties in Holyrood for whom, on a number of issues, when you speak to them, they all broadly agree, but it's hard to get from that broad agreement in principle to the detail and the implementation because of the kind of binary nature of the Scottish political uh, debate. Um, as Andy McKeever says, I think, yes, the Greens have made a smart move. Getting into government is risky for a small um, party ever to get into government. And the Greens got their fingers burned in Ireland, for example. Um, I think their performance 
by and large, given I have some issues with the personnel involved, um, has been reasonably competent. Um, I know people like to hit on Lorna Slater, they like to hit on Patrick Harvey, and I think some of the reasons for that are, 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 are valid. Um, but I think the substance is to do with policy, not, you know, personalities. Um, and there have been a number of ministers in previous administrations that are far weaker, less effective than uh, the current two uh, green ministers. And maybe that's a problem. I sometimes think, you know, the continuation of a parliamentary system where we select the executive out of the parliament, which only leaves 70 or so MSPs to do effective scrutiny on committees because, you know, 30 of them are in government. Maybe we should have a proper second chamber. Uh, maybe it should be elected by lot. Um, I'm a critic of the current system whereby 97% of people in Scotland will never be an MSP because they're not a member of a political party and never will be a member of a political party. And by large, independents don't get in. And if you think elections are messy affairs, you should look at selections inside parties. What a nightmare. The idea that you're actually getting the cream of these parties' talent is an utter nonsense. And, of course, they end up in the ballot paper and the list doesn't allow you to select between candidates. It's a closed list. So there's lots of, I think, very structural things we need to do to our governance to empower people is the short and or the long and the short of it. Yeah. I think that's interesting too because uh, because devolution in the grand scheme of things is still quite young and actually – Surely there can be an acceptance that things need to evolve and that structures structures need to change with the times. And and that surely should be an advantage of actually having what is quite a powerful devolved parliament at Holyrood. But the problem is that the UK as an institution has not followed that. It has no. not followed through and said, look, this poses quite significant questions for devolved governance. And if you look at the current, you know, standoff on gender recognition, on deposit return, if you look at the mess that is the Internal Market Act, that's an appalling piece of legislation. I mean, that was designed to replace the EU internal market. But the EU internal market functioned as an overarching set of rules governed by 27 or whatever it was, member states with representations in a European legislature and with political representation in a council of ministers. The internal market has no such governing apparatus to govern the internal nature of it. So the UK really needs to wake up. And, you know, the more intelligent voices have in the past on the unionist side, you know, said we do need to modernise UK governance. Otherwise, it may break. I don't think there's a risk of the UK breaking up now. But there's certainly that risk hasn't gone away forever because the UK is still a very largely unreformed place. I mean, you know, the House of Lords is a you know, classic example um, of that. Um, and, the, and the unwillingness of, of, of the UK really to embrace proper democratic reform and the ad hoc nature of what we've got. Again, most European countries can tell us a lot of lessons. No European country has the kind of ad hoc governance that the UK has. Can, can I just, I, I mean, Andy's really, really thoughtful, provoking stuff as has been touched on. Um, I'm sitting listening to you speak here. And you're a, undoubtedly a huge loss to our parliamentary politics. And so I suppose the natural question that flows from that is, is would you be tempted back to stand for elected politics? Would you be tempted back to support uh, perhaps a quasi-government uh, organisation to you can pursue some of these ideas, pursue some of these priorities as you see them? Because it sounds to me that we kind of need you in there at some level. 
Well, I mean, as you know, Jeff, unless you're unless you're in the executive, your scope for influence is rather limited. Because an MSP has got three jobs, I always thought. One is to pass laws, to be a legislator. The other is to hold the executive to account. And the other is to represent your constituents. And if you are just a backbencher, if you're not in government, yes, you can have a huge influence. I don't doubt that. You can actually potentially be quite transformative. Generally speaking, it's quite difficult. I'm not particularly tempted back to the party system, um, you know, I mean, the idea of having to, well, just the, yeah, I, I suppose I'm too independent minded for that. I might stand as an independent again, but independents really don't get, don't get in. So, I mean, the answer, broadly speaking, is probably not. Um, I mean, I did think when I was in there, 90% of the time I was dealing with quite important things, but they didn't really get me out of bed in the morning. You know, I mean, securing reforms and how we do debt recovery is really, really important. Don't get me wrong. Um, but I was never really excited by it, but I did the work, um, as I hope most MSPs do. And there's a 10% of the time where you're dealing with things, because m- much of what you're dealing with is is determined by the government, because they're the ones that are making initiatives, introducing legislation most of the time. 10% of the time you're dealing with things that really do get you excited and you're passionately interested in, but you don't have the time. Yeah. You don't have the time to properly you know, deal with it unless you're super organized etc. So I did for a lot of the time think I'd be far better outside here than in. Yeah. Um, I tell you, I, I tell you though, you know, we had uh, Jean Freeman on uh, talking passionately about what she saw as the absolute essential need to reform health um, uh, provision in our country. And if, if our government ministers are listening to this, I would be very tempted to pick up the phone and say, okay, here's a couple of things we'd like you to do. Um, because I don't think anyone would second guess that, given your thoughtfulness on that. Anyway, I I I, I really appreciate your contribution. Health, health's a really important one here. I mean, I remember in Hustings in 2016, tentatively suggesting in Hustings that rather than have a goal, a manifesto commitment, which was the SNP commitment at the time, to increase spending on the health service by X amount in the next four or five years, um, yes, there's there's increasing demands, but fundamentally, we should be wanting to reduce expenditure because the health service is not needed. We should be focusing on prevention and creating a healthy society. Now, I think in aggregate, the net situation would still be probably an increase in demand and resources and all the rest of it. But, you know, it's really difficult to have that conversation about, for example, health. Um it's just impossible. It's very difficult for politicians to have that conversation. But in an ideal world, which Andy McKeever talked about earlier, you would have a health service that wasn't having to do a great deal because nobody needed it because they were healthy. Yeah. Uh, Andy McKeever, a thought from you on, on all the ideas, so many ideas that we've had from Andy Whiteman today. It's brilliant. Yeah. Well, this is the thing. I mean, it's just, it's been really good to listen to. I, I, there's all, I always have a sort of split personality on this because I love listening to people like Andy, and we mentioned Jean as well, talking about their ideas. But then I say to myself, oh my God, but nobody's going to do any, like I know nobody's going to do any of this. And that's where it becomes really upsetting because there's nobody in that building who's actually all that driven to do anything about it. I've, I've talked a lot about... Um, in particular public services, health and education, and how we never look outside our borders to see how other people do it. We have this incredibly arrogant presumption 
And we say it all the time. People say, oh, the NHS is the envy of the world. And I look at that and go, what are you talking about? Of course it's not the envy of the world. There's precisely zero other rich democratic countries have copied the NHS. So if it was the envy of the world, I think somebody would maybe try it, but they never do. Um, and But what Andy really is highlighting here as well is it's not just in public services that we need to look outside our borders. It's actually in terms of how we structure politics because other countries, and Andy's mentioned European countries a lot, I would put in other Anglo-Saxon countries in there as well. Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the US, they have highly decentralised forms of politics and of government compared to ours. So it's not like we're taking some leap out of our comfort zone. You know, this is our the, the countries that we created do this as well. We are the ones who are left behind. I think that and there's lots of reflections I could give, but here's just one on what Andy said, and then I'll and then I'll stop. Um, we organise. We have not exploited devolution, either nationalists or unionists. So if you look at the SNP, certainly from 2011 to now. It's been an incredibly managerial government. It hasn't been radical at all. It has not used the full powers of devolution. And that's a nationalist government that has not used the full powers of devolution. And the unionist parties have acted effectively as a sort of first line of defence for their own parties in London, rather than being um, you know, their own party in Scotland, and that has most particularly affected the Tories, but the others have done it as well. You know, you have a situation in Canada whereby the federal parties who stand in the parliament in Ottawa, they have no links, even sometimes although they share a name, so they'll have liberal parties in Ottawa and liberal parties in, uh, you know, in Calgary, um, they may share a name, but they're actually not linked. And so in all these provincial parliaments in Canada, you have parties that are only there only in that provincial parliament and only doing things which affect that jurisdiction. And I think that if we could have one thing that would totally change the game for us in Scottish politics, I think it would be that the separation, not only the legislative and regulatory separation and tax separation that devolution allows, but also the party separation that devolution allows. I think that would, uh, that would enable us to create much more bespoke policy and actually make, you know, yes, we can have a discussion about extra powers and I'm in favour of extra powers, particularly in taxation. But actually we could do a lot more with the powers that we do have. We talked earlier about local government reorganisation. Nobody has to give Holyrood permission to reorganise local government. Nobody has to do that. We don't have to look to London for that. We can do that ourselves, but we never do. We're too scared. Um, and I think we have to just come out of that that comfort zone. And yeah, you know, there's there. It's what Andy says is, as I say, I have this split personality because all the things that Andy's talked about are really quite inspiring. And you think to yourself, wouldn't that be great if we could do that? And then you come back to reality with a bump, and you remember what we're dealing with here, and you say to yourself, Ah, that's a shame that that's never going to happen. Uh, well, on that note, I mean, I suppose it's <laughs> The coming of a Scottish Parliament is a quasi-revolutionary moment, and in quasi-revolutionary moments you can do a lot. And I suppose partly we don't have that revolutionary moment anymore, um, but that's no excuse. <laughs> we could create one. That's the thing. Why not have another one? Uh, you know. Ah, uh-huh. we could. There you are. Uh, Led by Holyrood. That's right. You heard it here first. I was just thinking, I'm sure when we had Jack McConnell on, he was talking about changes to local democracy, was he not? He was. I'm wondering if, uh, if Andy Whiteman and, and Lord, Lord McConnell should team we need, up. We need, um, 
anyway but there's the pro- they're exactly there is what you're saying and it goes back to Gene as well that yeah. is I'm afraid the problem is that there are too many disincentives for people to do things when they can mm. and you know they, they and I don't I'm not suggesting Andy's in this camp because Andy wasn't in government but there are people who have been in power who have been in government. Gordon Brown is always a classic example of this, now talking about you know federalism and a v- variety of different forms of devolution. These people are too often talking about the things that should happen after they've had the power to do it. They could have done it at the time, and I find it intensely frustrating that they, that they didn't. I, I know we've got to wind up, but Andy, but, but surely let's try and turn that into a positive and say we've got these individuals who've got important contributions to make, such as Andy Whiteman, such as Gordon Brown, such as Gene Freeman, surely the, it's not beyond the capability or the wherewithal um, of our current administrators or our current politicians to say, OK, let's get them onto some sort of independent group to try and advise on these important issues, give a close remit, a focus remit of where we need to see positive reform and do it. Um, because else I feel that we just continue in this spiral that we cover a lot in this podcast of mediocrity, and uh, and then the blame game when the the elections happen. Uh, so I do feel we need to try and remove some of this from frontline politics, and it's certainly a theme that we are touching on in almost every person we speak to on this podcast. Yeah, for sure. Um, Andy Whiteman, thank you so much. Thanks for taking so much time to uh, leave us with so yeah, many thank big you. thoughts. It's really really good to have you on. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Thanks. Been fantastic. Andy and Jeff, thank you. And to Andy Whiteman as well, thank you all for being here on Hollywood Sources. A reminder then that next week is the by-election in Rutherglen and Hamilton West. So with that in mind, we will not be here on Wednesday. The by-election is Thursday, but you can then expect, anticipate and get excited for the post-match analysis with Jeff and Andy after the by-election result is known, after the parties have responded, Jeff and Andy will have their say. You can expect that in your podcast feed probably around dinner time on Friday evening after to the by-election. So make sure you follow and subscribe. You'll get that episode next week and we'll talk to you then. 